Good morning, everyone. As um, Emily already uh, said in her prayer, we are happy this morning to welcome uh, Dr. Jeffrey Arthurs. Uh, Dr. Arthurs uh, will be uh, preaching with us this Sunday and also the next uh, three Sundays as he's going to be uh, giving a four-week series uh, on the topic of the problem of evil in the world. Uh, Dr. Arthurs is a uh, preaching professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's also the chair of the Department of uh, Practical Theology. And uh, he's said, told me he's originally from uh, Pennsylvania. He's also an elder at the church, uh, his home church, which is North Shore Community uh, Baptist Church. And for those of you who care, he was also a one-time ping-pong champion. <laughs> so you guys can challenge him if you're up to it. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Arthurs this morning also uh, brought his lovely wife, Liz, and then two of his, uh, well, one of his students, and I guess, I guess, uh, David and then Peter. Uh, so as Dr. Arthur comes up, please help me welcome all of them. Thank you, Pastor David. Thank you, Pastor Chuck, who is on sabbatical, but he's here today anyway. What an honor and privilege to be with you, this great, great church in the greater Boston area, a church that stands for the Word of God, stands for the glory of God. I was very encouraged by that time of singing. Is that typical for your church? Uh, What a terrific team that you have. Thank you so much for ministering to everybody, to myself included. My wife, Liz, is here in the front. Next to her is our friend David, and, and Peter and Whalian are sort of at the break between the, the aisles there also. And uh, we are from Gordon-Conwell uh, Theological Seminary. Well, the topic for this week and the next three weeks, I'll be here for four altogether, is living in a world of hurt, or why do we suffer? Uh, The theologians call it the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we don't often ask, but why do good things happen to bad people? The problem of evil and suffering. The four weeks uh, look like this. Today we'll take a look at the book of Job. Then next week... The story of Lazarus, John chapter 11, divine dawdling. Jesus deliberately dawdled until his friend died. Do not lose heart from 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul said, do not lose heart. And then finally, a sermon on heaven. I'm studying for that message right now. What a great encouragement to think about the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, which is the future of those who trust Christ. But we live in a world of hurt. As we travel through this world, we're bound to come to the river Epirus. Epirus. In Greek mythology, the river Epirus had some strange qualities. It would douse every lit torch it would light every unlit torch. And suffering is like that. It has the potential to quench, douse our faith, to put a wedge between us and God. It also has the potential to draw us closer to God, 
to lighten the fire in our hearts. My prayer, my purpose in this series is to help you prepare for trials so that they would not quench your faith and cause you to depart from the faith and say, oh, forget this thing. Or if you're currently in trials and you can bet that someone in this room in a group this size, yes, even of younger people, is experiencing trials, the goal is the same that these trials would be a means of drawing you closer to God, a means of sanctification, of loving God better, experiencing Him more deeply, rather than uh, dousing the torch of your faith. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, as we take up this very serious, important, uh, uh, relevant issue of suffering. Please strengthen our faith so that we are closer to you because of trials. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be familiar with the author and philosopher Elie Wiesel, taught at Harvard for a while. I'm not sure if he's still there. He's old now. He was a survivor of the German concentration camps. He's Jewish. He was a teenager when they took him to Birkenbau, very large concentration camp. And in his uh, memories of that experience, he's written a book called Night. And Professor Wiesel says, Never shall I forget that night, that first night that he arrived, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke, the smoke of the ovens that were burning bodies. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies were turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself, never. Elie Wiesel came to the river Epirus, and it quenched the faith of his upbringing, Judaism. And I do not judge him for that, because he was tested far beyond what I ever have been. Nevertheless, it illustrates the potential of suffering to put a wedge between us and God. We live in a world of hurt. Am I right? This is the nature of this fallen world. Christians are not immune to suffering. Am I right? And yet... The, the core of our faith teaches us 
three truths, and it's very hard to hold all three of these truths. Nevertheless, all three are there, and that is God is all-powerful. I mean, that's we believe that. Sovereign, lots of verses in the Bible teach it. He, is all, he created everything. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Second truth, He is all-loving. God is love. He is kindly disposed. He's not hard and cruel and capricious and callous. He's loving. And evil exists. We could handle any two of those truths, but Christianity holds all three. If God was not all-powerful, but he was you know, still loving, and we could understand, oh, rats, God just can't do anything about it, but his heart is for, if he was not loving, if he was hard and cruel, he's powerful, he just doesn't want to do anything about it. But Christianity holds all three, and that's the tension as we come to our topic. Everybody struggles with this issue, not just Christians, even the, the great philosophies of the world, the great religions of the world, they also struggle with the problem of evil. They have their own way of working this out. For example, uh, a number of the, uh, the Eastern religions, pantheistic religions, deny the last uh, proposition that evil exists. They say, no, all is one. There's no difference between evil and good, light and darkness, life and death. Material, immaterial, it is all one. But I don't find that satisfying. I think there is objective evil in this world. The torture of animals and the rape of children and the genocide of a people is not just something that's in my mind. And yet we all wrestle with this and have our own ways of dealing with it. I would like to give you a biblical perspective, a biblical theology, if you will, over the next four weeks on why do we suffer? How can we go through suffering? How can it strengthen our faith and not douse uh, the lit torch? Well, anytime you come to this topic in the Bible, you have to turn to the book of Job, right? Job lived on the banks of Epirus. He waded in them often. They almost drowned him. And so today's topic, today's text is Job. Have you considered my servant Job? So said the Lord to Satan. And so we say to each other, have you thought about Job who came through the trials stronger because of them? So I have a very simple message, at least simple in structure. I have four lessons from the book of Job. doesn't mean they're easy lessons and they're, or they lack profundity, but in terms of the structure, you'll find it easy to follow. Here's the first lesson. The first lesson from the book of Job. Sometimes the righteous suffer. That is what the book teaches us. Chapter 1, verse 1, if you have your Bible open. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was, you listening? That man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. He was a good man. 
He turned away from evil. He feared God. He honored God. He was upright. He was a good guy. Chapter 29, verse 11. Uh, and following, verses 11 and uh, through 17. Chapter 29. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. The fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Are you following this? Job was a good guy. He's helping the helpless. He's a father to the fathers. He's looking out for the widows. They're rising up and blessing him. He was using his vast wealth for good in this world. He was a good man. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm saying he was a good man who honored God. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. He stood for justice, for the helpless. I'd like to be able to say some of these things about myself. He was a good man. Chapter 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a young woman? He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. I mean, it's almost predating our Lord Jesus, who said, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He made a covenant. He wasn't even looking lustfully. How many of us can say this? A covenant with his eyes. You may find it interesting to look at 42.15. This is, you know, at the end of the story after Job's been through his trials. Chapter 42, verse 15. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Here's the interesting thing. And their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. That may just sort of sort of go over the top of our heads as we read today. But this was very, you know, progressive, very enlightened, very unusual. He gave the daughters, the women, the girls an inheritance along with the boys. He was a good guy. That's what the Bible teaches. And he suffered. And that is the first principle. Sometimes... Suffering is unrelated to discipline and evil and sometimes the righteous suffer. And believe me, he suffered. The desert nomads, the Sabaeans, raided his corrals. They carried off his donkeys and his oxen and they killed his servants. Fire from the sky, lightning, I don't know. Fire from the sky fell and they burned up his sheep and his servants. Chaldeans from the Fertile Crescent far away, Chaldeans came, and they're, they're raiders, and they carried off his camels, and they killed his servants. You don't want to be a servant of Job. Very low life expectancy. He had seven sons and three daughters that were killed by a whirlwind, a tornado. 
Chapter 1 says, A mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, the, the sons and daughters, and they are dead. Ten kids. He himself was afflicted with boils. You know what boils are? I looked it up in that magisterial source of information, Wikipedia. A boil is, a boil or furnuncle is a skin disease caused by the inflammation of hair follicles, thus resulting in the localized accumulation of pus and dead tissue. Individual boils can cluster together to form an interconnected network of boils called carbuncles. In severe cases, boils may develop to form abscesses. The Bible says he scraped himself with pottery. He took pottery, probably a broken pot. Chapter 6, verse 10, I have unrelenting pain. Chapter 16, my body is clothed with worms and scabs, and my skin is broken and festering. My face is red with weeping. Deep shadows ring my eyes. Chapter 19, my breath is offensive. I am loathsome to my brothers. Chapter 30, my skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. He suffered. And he was a good man. And that is the first lesson of the book of Job. Now, we don't have a lot of time. To, this is a big subject. Even four weeks, you know, we can't get in. But just let me briefly say, some suffering is a result of sin. And in a general sense, death and suffering is part of our sin. You know, being in this fallen world, Adam and Eve and all of us, you know, death and, and sin uh, come with sin. Uh, Romans uh, 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Yeah, and all of us under, are under that sentence. All of us are earning that wages. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul that sins shall die. That's us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, Many among you, you Corinthians, many among you are weak and sick because of specific sins. So, so in cases, the Bible does link these, but that's not the point I'm making. That's not the point that Job is making. Job is making another point. Sometimes the righteous suffer. Sometimes it is unrelated to at least specific acts of sin. And there you have the first lesson. How does this apply to you? I'm not sure. When we suffer, I, I think that it probably is wise for us to pause and consider, you know, if you get sick or if you have a financial setback or if this or that happens, I think it's, it's, it's good for us to pause and say, Lord, is this disciplinary? 
Am I off the path here? Are you trying to get my attention? Do a little honest self-reflection. But if, under the Spirit's guidance, if you conclude, no, no I, there, there's nothing glaring, there's nothing outstanding, then you can at least take some comfort in this truth. Sometimes the righteous suffer. That was true in Job's case. And then a second lesson. When we suffer, lament is a legitimate form of prayer. Chapter 7, verse 11 says, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain. That's the Hebrew word for lament. I will voice, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. The Lord did not rebuke Job for his lamenting. Job came pretty close to crossing the line into, you know, accusatory, almost blasphemy, but he did not cross, he did not accuse God of evil, but, but he, on the other hand, he also said, what is going on here? Lord, I, I, don't, under, I don't understand. I am righteous, I'm not perfect, but I, you know, I'm breaking the fangs of the wicked and... And we call that lament. The American church, I assume this is true, the Chinese American church, we really don't have much of a handle on biblical lament. But it's a major uh, mode of communication, a major mode of prayer in the Bible. You know the book of Psalms has how many Psalms in it? hundred and... 150. You know, there's different kinds of psalms. There's wisdom psalms, almost like the book of Proverbs. There's messianic psalms, you know, about Jesus. Do you know the largest category of psalms? Lament. Depending how you categorize them, scholars say probably 50 of the 150 are sighing out our confusion and pain. To God. But you and I don't, we're kind of embarrassed by that. Do you know they used to sing those psalms in church, in the worship? They used to sing them corporately. Oh Lord, where are you? That life stinks, oh Lord. Please vindicate me. Lord, are you deaf to it? They used to sing these together. We would be like, well, this, I can't do that. Uh, Lightning will come down. I'm not sure how to apply this truth, but I think we need to recapture or capture for the first time this biblical, legitimate, God-honoring, modeled form of prayer called lament. You can certainly lament privately. And you don't have to feel guilty about that. God can handle your lamentation. Perhaps you can lament with a friend. Perhaps you can lament in a small group. Perhaps you could lament in a worship service. You have some skilled songwriters in this church. How about putting one of these biblical psalms to music so that corporately, with solidarity, 
we express that this long and winding road we call this pilgrim journey is tough. In any case, we have this second principle. Lament is a legitimate form of prayer. Christian counselor Larry Crabb says one of the least user-friendly truths the Bible teaches is that in this life, something is always missing. For those of you who have not crossed the line of faith and you would not consider yourself a Christian, I, I just want to you know, confess this and admit this to you. There is something, even for Christians, there is something always missing from this life. That's right. And the Bible teaches that. This is a fallen world. And when confronted with this fallen world, we lament. Larry Crabb's uh, former partner in the counseling ministry, Dan Allender, says, A lament is truly asking, seeking, and knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. It is passion to ask rather than rant and rave with already reached conclusions. A lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion and moves toward God. There is a fine line between complaining and grumbling, which is a sin, and lamenting, which is not a sin, but is a modeled, recommended, legitimate form of expression. When you suffer, especially when you suffer as a righteous person, you may do well to take your prayer to God in the form of lament. The third lesson from the book of Job. God sovereignly sanctions some suffering. I think this is the toughest of the four lessons. This lesson raises both the hope and the problem. It raises the problem because the Bible teaches God sanctions. He allows, he puts his approval. And so we lament. We say, well, I don't get this. What is going on? But it also raises the hope because God sovereignly sanctions. He wisely, he in control, he overseeingly, he, he's in control. This is a tough truth, though. It is, it is the biblical truth. It is part of what the book of Job teaches us. He sovereignly sanctions some of your suffering. The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, evil murderers and thieves, as well as natural disasters, the whirlwind, the fire from the sky, as well as Job's own sickness, the boils, caused him, all of those caused him immense suffering. Behind these natural things and these evil people was Satan. Behind Satan was God, who said to Satan, 
go your way. I will lengthen your choke chain a few feet. But you may not touch him, bring him death. He was sovereignly sanctioning some of this suffering. And Satan, by the way, let me tell you something, Satan. He's going to come through this like gold, purified gold. This is a tough truth. Some people cannot receive this truth. It's just too much for them. They've been through too much suffering and their perspective is so, like God is mean, God is cruel, and they just cannot receive this. In the, I think it was the 1980s, maybe the 90s, there was a bestseller by Harold Kushner. The title was When Bad Things Happen to Good People, dealing with the problem of evil like you and I are. Uh, Harold Kushner was a, uh, a rabbi, so he was coming out of, you know, from that perspective. His son, his dear son, was killed in an auto accident. And so he started wrestling with these things like you and I are. Here was Kushner's conclusion about the sovereign sanctioning of God. I recognize God's limitations. He is limited in what he can do by the laws of nature and the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect, even when he has let you down, disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in his world and permitting some of these things to happen to you? Can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations. I do not judge Rabbi Kushner. God, preserve me from losing a beloved son. Nevertheless, I have to say, in, with biblical integrity, as called to simply pass on what he has already revealed to us, I have to, I have to say the truth, and the truth is not this perspective. The truth from the book of Job is sometimes he sovereignly sanctions some suffering. And you ask, why? What good, what possible good? It's a good question. It's a big topic. Very briefly, let me suggest some very quick answers to the question why, and really the rest of this series, the other three weeks, we'll come back to this. Why does he allow suffering? What possible good can come from it? Suffering helps us sympathize and help others. I'm not saying that, you know, that clears up all the mystery, but it it is a partial answer to the question why. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, So that, hear that purpose clause, he comforts us when we're being afflicted, so that, verse 4, we may be able to comfort other people 
who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have received. Look, if your grandparent has Alzheimer's, it's very painful, very, it's very difficult for you. You are in a position to do something that a person not in that situation really can't do as well, to extend as the minister of God, the hands and feet, the mouthpiece, the, as the body of Christ, to extend the comfort that he has extended to you. And that is a partial answer to the big question, why do we suffer? If you have been the object of lies, anybody here? It's very painful it, it's suffering. It really is not physical, but it kind of has physical consequences. But it's very painful. And yet you are maintaining your faith, and you have not departed from the faith, and you are experiencing the grace of God because they lied about Jesus. And you are being made one in his suffering. You are in a position to extend to someone else in that situation something that the others of us really can't. Another uh, partial answer to the question why is because suffering is designed to purify our character. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me, Paul, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the visions that I had received, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You, you hear this? You follow this? In order so that I wouldn't get proud because, you know, he was, he was really favored by God. He was a great apostle. He, he had these visions and revelations. In order to keep me from becoming proud, God sovereignly sanctioned a thorn in the flesh. He calls him a messenger of Satan. Sounds very much like the book of Job. For what purpose? So he wouldn't be conceited to purify his character. And suffering can do that. It can make us gentle. It can make us compassionate. It can make us patient. It, can, it has these sanctifying godly influences. It can light every unlit torch. And that is one of the reasons why he allows suffering. And then a third reason, it simply helps us long for heaven. I'll be preaching on that in the final week. But we see that in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day because this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all. Therefore, we do not look at the things that are seen, but we look at the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It helps us long for the next stage when there will be no evil. Let me give you one more perspective from the book of Job, lesson number four. 
the pursuit of God can, and I think it's fair to say should, take place without immediate reward. Job teaches us that. Job models that for us. If you are suffering, I urge you, I pray for you, I commend you to God, keep pursuing him. If you have not yet suffered, I, without being a prophet of doom, I say to you, it is coming. And you should, in that circumstance, still pursue God. That's what I want. I've been sobered as I've been preparing these messages. I've been preaching to myself as I've been preparing. But this is the kind of faith that I want. Because all of us are going to come to the river Epirus. And with this biblical teaching, perhaps, God can preserve us and draw us closer to himself through suffering. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us, help us, Lord, when suffering comes. Help us to be like Job, who lamented and yet he did not accuse. He remained steadfast, even though it was very hard. And you purified him and sanctified him through the suffering. Help us to come through as gold. In Jesus' name, amen.